Warning. This episode contains descriptions of the mistreatment of children and references to slavery, which some listeners may find upsetting. Two businessmen and a surveyor walk into the woods. Not the beginning of some hilarious wisecrack, but the first few steps towards cementing a legacy. Traversing the sylvan slopes of the Cheshire countryside and clambering through dense vegetation along the River Bolin, engineer Hugh Oldham, merchant John Massey, and ambitious textile tycoon Samuel Gregg are prospecting for the perfect place to construct one of the first purpose-built cotton mills of the Industrial Revolution. Around nine miles south of Manchester, they stumbled across the serene bucolic backwater of Ferny Brow, a virgin glade at the bottom of a leafy valley, a short walk from the tiny village of Stile. It is here, in 1784, that the foundations were laid for not only one of the world's first factories, but for a discrepant dynasty which would play its part in transforming the modern world. Samuel Gregg had been born in Belfast in 1758, the son of fabulously affluent merchant and shipping magnate Thomas Gregg and his wife Elizabeth Hyde. Their wealth had been gradually accumulated through the misery of the transatlantic slave trade, an endless triangular convoy of captured souls and blood-soaked luxury goods. Preoccupied with the business of human trafficking, his parents sent an eight-year-old Sam across the Irish Sea and into the care of his uncles Nathaniel and Robert Hyde, fustian drapers based in Manchester who manufactured a heavy, hand-woven flax and cloth comparable to denim, employed primarily for men's garments and other utilitarian applications. It was there, in between terms at Harrow and Stanmore, that the infantile industrialist began to take an interest in the family firm, eventually joining the enterprise once his schooling had concluded. Young Master Greg seems to have made quite an impression on his uncles, his diligence and business acumen securing the inheritance of their corporation in 1782, after Robert died and an ageing Nathaniel decided to retire. Now 24, and in possession of incredible financial resources, Sam found himself at the centre of an empire, one that stretched from the urban sprawl of northwest England to the achingly lush cotton fields and sugar plantations of the Caribbean, Brazil and the southern United States. A new man, with new ideas. His first aim was to diversify, cast off the stuffed linen shirts of the previous generation in order to capitalise on the growing demand for fine cotton cloth, a luxurious, fashionable and exotic fabric. Arkwright's invention of the water frame in 1769 had revolutionised the laborious task of spinning the raw fluffy balls into yarn, up to 96 balls at a time. Work which would have taken spinsters weeks to accomplish could now be done in a matter of hours, and all powered by the continuous flow of water and the grinding of gears. 
His ambition was to establish his own mill, transposing a towering fragment of the urban landscape into a pastoral setting, and providing jobs for villagers whose fitful livelihoods had become curtailed by the creeping threat of enclosure. It was to be a state-of-the-art brick building of skyscraping proportions and filled with the very latest technology, built to maximise natural resources, but also leave room to expand. To achieve his vision, Mr Gregg cut a deal to lease the land at Fernie Brow from the Earl of Stamford for the princely sum of £3,000, around half a million pounds today, going on to pour a further £16,000 into his grand design, building and furnishing the mill to the highest specifications and spending the modern equivalent of £3.5 million all told. Much of the investment came from the enormous dowry bequeathed to him upon his marriage to Hannah Lightbody, the daughter of an equally wealthy Liverpudlian capitalist, whose kind nature and inquisitive mind complemented Sam's progressive attitude and steely determination perfectly. Mrs Gregg also brought with her a new theological perspective, Unitarianism, a branch of the Christian faith which came to be formally recognised in the 1770s, developed in part as an attempt to reconcile Christ's teachings with the sweeping technological and societal upheaval of the Enlightenment, dubbed by contemporaries as the Great Awakening. Central to this brand of New Light Presbyterianism is the belief in one indivisible God, whose only begotten Son was rather a mere mortal like everyone else, and whose word could not be found in the Bible, that being the work of man. Their anthropocentric approach declared that faith and the pursuit of reason, rational thought, science and philosophy are not mutually exclusive, and that if guided by Jesus' example, humans are able to exert their free will in a responsible and constructive manner, our nature being neither inherently corrupt nor wicked, but capable of both good and evil. No demons or the divine are responsible for the ills of the world. We are, and only we can do something to remedy them. At around the time of Samuel's birth, 800 miles away in southern France, the philosopher Voltaire was himself in the process of becoming patriarch of an estate, purchasing the coincidentally named village of Ferney, a mere six kilometres outside Geneva. Having left the canton in 1759, smothered by the puritanical attitudes of the ruling Calvinist government, a place where theatre, amusement and frivolity were all but banned, he decided to invest the fortune he'd amassed at the royal courts of Europe, and give something back to the community. Steered by his unwavering beliefs in religious tolerance, equitable wealth generation, and the fundamental rights of man. Not only did Voltaire pay for the complete renovation of the church, he invested heavily in the arts, culture and commerce of the region, building theatres, revitalising the local ceramics industry, and developing the burgeoning watchmaking trade, a heritage which persists today with the ticking of Swiss timekeepers. Although he shared many of Voltaire's altruistic sentiments, Samuel was keen to avoid any decadent Catholic connotations with his new venture, and chose to appropriate the name of a local farm, Quarry Bank, instead, a designation much more palatable to Presbyterian tastes. The Greggs' unconventional religious beliefs set them apart from their establishment peers, and barred them from much of high society. They believed in modesty, hard work and self-improvement, but also that their station assumed a responsibility and a duty of care to their employees, indeed to all those less fortunate. It is in this regard that certain contradictions in their paternalistic worldview become glaringly apparent. On the one hand, they were self-proclaimed compassionate benefactors, who apparently took an active and kindly interest in the welfare of their employees, but on the other, 
They were slave-owning capitalists, whose entire business and lifestyle depended on the suffering and mistreatment of thousands of people across the globe. One of Samuel's most malignantly lucrative assets was the Hillsborough Estate, a 760-acre sugar plantation on the island of Dominica in the West Indies, passed down from his paternal uncle John Gregg, and populated by 150 African slaves, men, women, and children. How could they align such righteous rhetoric with the disastrously dissonant reality? The philosopher of Fernie actively campaigned for the abolition of slavery, whereas Samuel seems to have taken a much more callously pragmatic view. It was simply business. The pursuit of profit turned a willfully blind eye to the plight of their hopeless cargo. He had never known any different. His family had been profiting from the unspoken horrors of the Middle Passage for perhaps the best part of a century. So had countless others, including his brothers-in-law Thomas Hodgson, who owned a fleet of slaving ships, and banker Thomas Pears, who made his fortune trading captives on the stock exchange. Closer to home, the division of labour at Quarry Bank was as equally chilling. Out of the 150 people required to operate the mill, children made up the majority of the workforce. They were housed, two to a bed, in the apprentice house, providing accommodation for 85 girls and around 15 boys, who in most cases had been transferred from the inner-city workhouses of various coal-choked conurbations nearby. Orphans, able-bodied street urchins, the progeny of the wretched poor. These youngsters had few if any legal rights and were signed over to the mills by the workhouse masters with no consultation or real consideration for their well-being. A toneless transaction, one for which the Greggs were financially compensated. The late 18th century perspective seems to have been that this was a benevolent act, a charity, work in the mill or die on the streets. Once enrolled, at around 10 years old, the life of a mill apprentice was bleak. Their indenture secured an eight-year contract, eight years of 5.30 starts and 12-hour shifts, six days a week. An hour after work began, a small handful of desiccated porridge would serve as breakfast, a cheap Georgian precursor to Belvita, fueling their tiny bodies just enough to run the gauntlet with the clattering razor-edged machinery of the new industrial age. Work would continue until midday, when each would receive a second spoon-sized portion intended to see them through until around half-past seven in the evening. A poultry supper of overboiled vegetables would follow at least another hour tending to the allotments and various household chores, after which the boys would be led in scholarly instruction and condescended to by the wife of the mill owner, Hannah Gregg, a millionaire who would discourage them from seeking their own fortune, declaring an untarnished reputation and obedient character to be much more valuable. Girls were not afforded the same kindness. Theirs was a life without prospects, aside from extended domestic drudgery. Educating them was deemed a total waste of time, and likely to overwhelm their feminine constitutions. At half past five in the morning, the doleful tolling of the factory bell, and later a steam whistle, roused them from a condign slumber, allowing a short time for rudimentary ablutions outside in the yard which amounted to little more than a quick splash of ice-cold pump water across their waif-like faces. Clad in their only set of unwashed threadbare clothes and a pair of rough wooden clogs. Machinery now dictated the hours in a day and how you spent them. Factory time replaced the long-ingrained circadian rhythms of a population whose pace had once been kept by the celestial motion of the sun and moon. 
Time was now someone else's money. Having wound their way through the lamplit lanes to the factory gates, their arduous stint as a scutcher, scavenger or spinner would begin. Bales of fresh cotton five feet high and weighing over 300 kilograms would need to be removed from storage and onto the factory floor. Handfuls of the raw material were then taken and passed through the iron rollers of the scutching machine. Its purpose was to remove any impurities from the unprocessed cotton. A series of mechanised iron rods beat down onto the fibres, knocking any remaining seeds or bits of plant material out and onto the floor. The near-constant pummeling it received also melted the filaments into a sheet of felted cotton, called a lap. The lap would then be moved onto a carding machine, where a series of large rotating drums covered in thousands of sharp steel pins separated and orientated the fibres to a uniform direction before they were sloughed off as loosely bound cords, known as slivers. The slivers would then be roved, consolidated and strengthened by being drawn through a number of small rollers, curling like whipped ice cream, into a metal canister ready for spinning. Once a can was full, it needed to be carried through the lint-drenched cacophony and over to the spinning jenny, another wooden machine which pulled the thick robes into thinner and longer lengths, before these were in turn attached to the water frame and spun onto spindles as finished yarn. Later on, these two machines would be combined into the mule, which as the name suggests, was a hybrid machine capable of spinning a much longer and much stronger cotton yarn, up to 1300 reels at a time producing over 240 miles in a day. The children's quick wits and nimble fingers made them the ideal, albeit incongruous operators of their new mechanised reality. No other job suited their callow dexterity, like that of a scavenger, sweeping up waste material from within and underneath the equipment while it was still in motion, making sure that not a scrap was wasted, and to minimise the risk of a fire. The industrial age in which they found themselves was completely unforgiving. Accidents were commonplace, to the extent that a doctor, Mr. Holland, was employed on a full-time basis and resident nearby should any tiny hands be pulled into the workings or heads crushed beneath iron beams. In such instances, an overlooker's main concern was how quickly a machine could be reinstated. The blood was often barely dry before a reticent replacement was found, and the wheels of industry began to turn once more. The hardships of life at Quarry Bank were just too much for some to bear. Records show that at least 100 children attempted to escape the apprentice system. Some were more successful than others. One lad, nine-year-old Thomas Priestley, along with his sidekick Joseph Sefton, managed to get as far as the east end of London. The boys had gone AWOL two months after the index finger on Thomas's left hand had been torn off by an overloaded mule. After being recovered by local constables, he explained to magistrates that he had no reason to be dissatisfied with his situation and had merely sought the comfort of his mother after suffering his accident. To give them their dues, compared to the owners of inner city mills, the Greggs did look after their labourers, but in much the same way as they took care of their horses. Yes, the kids would be fed, watered and provided with a pile of straw to sleep on, but should they outlive their utility, they'd be swiftly thrown back into the workhouse, society's knacker's yard. Misdemeanours were usually punished through the levying of fines, which in real terms meant that a long and arduous day became even longer until the balance had been paid. Physical punishments were rare. Girls who fell from grace would sometimes be subjected to the indignity of having their hair shaved off, but that was reserved as a last resort. Unruly children could also be locked in solitary confinement, 
an attic space being reserved for that very purpose at the top of the Prentice House. In contrast, child workers in nearby Manchester were exposed to horrifically rough treatment. They were the recipients of violence and abuse on a scale unfathomable to our modern sensibilities. Corporal punishments were a fact of life. Stories abound of children being strung up above machinery and beaten unconscious for the most minor indiscretions. If they didn't die at work, or at the hands of their masters, they would often succumb to the pangs of hunger, or freeze to death in the slums. For all its wrongs, life within the chocolate box vista of Quarry Bank was as good as anyone at the time could have hoped for, if not better. It may only have been a morning's ride away from the city, but it would have felt like a million miles. Economic pressures elsewhere in England saw a huge surge of migration from the southern counties in the early 19th century. A population boom expedited by rampant urbanisation, in tandem with increased mechanisation and the enclosure of once common land, all meant that in many places the supply of labour outstripped demand. This imbalance forced the proliferating workforce to seek employment elsewhere. Most headed north, and some ended up in style, which was fast becoming a model village. By 1825, Samuel's son Robert Hydegreg had been taken on as junior partner in the family firm. He was as equally ambitious as his father had been as a young man, and was keen to expand the business even further. His vision was to double the size of the mill, swap the two now antiquated wooden mill wheels for an enormous 40-foot wide cast iron replacement, and augment the building's power supply with a series of steam engines. Mismanagement of the watercourses at Quarry Bank and further upstream, chiefly related to the expansion of the canal network, meant that the Bollins' usually predictable flow had become somewhat unreliable. An enlarged factory would require a larger pool of labour, and they would require somewhere to live nearby. Robert's grand plan included the development of Style Village and the construction of 42 new cottages, two chapels, a school, and a general store. The original lease agreement for use of the land at Quarry Bank stipulated that the right to collect domestic rents remained with the Earl of Stamford. For Samuel Gregg and Sons to reap the benefits of real estate, they would need to own the land. After some fraught negotiations over nine months, the Greggs finally purchased the property for £62,643, an astronomical amount of money at the time. To put it into financial perspective, £60,000 in 1825 would have been enough to pay a skilled tradesman for 400,000 days' work, or well over 1,000 years. Ground was broken shortly after the deal was signed, and building work began in earnest. The cornerstone of Robert's business plan was to bring every stage of cotton manufacture in-house. Up until then, for well over 40 years, the Greg's cotton yarn had been outsourced to weavers in the local area and further afield, as far as Derbyshire, a primarily cottage industry of both men and women equipped with looms in their own homes, known as putters out. The demand for cotton fabric had surpassed the speed at which the widespread weavers could make it by hand. If they were going to compete in the global marketplace, they would have to move with the times and upgrade to the latest innovations even if that meant laying off long-standing workers elsewhere. 
To this end, a further steam engine was installed, along with the creation of a weaving room and the inauguration of 100 mechanised looms to be manned by the ever-growing local community. Men would be paid 10 shillings a week, around £45 in 2022, and women half as much, most of which was earmarked for rent. Rent on a house that your employer owned. What little remained would go towards providing a meagre diet, with goods purchased from the local shop, also part of the mill owner's philanthropic portfolio, supplemented by whatever else you could grow or scrape together. Money wouldn't so much be earned as continuously cycled. Wages were a formality, belying the harsh fiscal reality. Your employer held all the cards and all the cash at all times. At New Lanark Mill in Scotland, now a UNESCO World Heritage Site, they'd cut out the middlemen. Children would be sent on messages to the general store. Daily necessities like milk, butter and bread could be obtained with relative ease. The cost of every ounce set aside on account. On payday, those amounts along with the rent would be deducted before the balance of wages was doled out. A worker would never actually see the money they were earning. Just like Sonny and Cher, before it was earned, it had often all been spent. Their task was to man the iron-framed Lancashire looms, which used leather-sprung paddles to toss a steel-tip shuttle from side to side at 60 miles per hour, and up to 260 times, or picks, per minute. The shuttle drew cotton thread between the alternately elevated, or heddled, warp threads, which was tamped down with every stroke by the reed to the fell of the cloth. The mesmerisingly swift process was fluid enough as to appear effortless, the contraption spewing out an almost endless ribbon of plainly woven fabric at a rate incomprehensible just a few years previously. The finished textile would be passed over the breast beam and onto the cloth roller, a thick wooden dowel at the front of the device from where it could be collected and sent to the warehouse. A weaver would be responsible for ensuring the loom was provided with as much yarn as it required to fulfil their commission and to repair any broken threads. Subsequent models became fully automatic, coming to a halt when the required yardage had been met or when a bobbin finally ran out. An innovation that led to a reduced need for human participation and consequent redundancies. At six o'clock in the evening, the factory bell would release the workers of Quarrybank from their toil, returning them to their cramped candlelit homes for an evening's respite from the dust-strewn workplace. Life expectancy was short. Bisonosis, or cotton lung, was a common condition afflicting workers of all ages. Tiny, often microscopic cotton fibres released into the atmosphere would be inhaled day by day. Such was the level of contamination, symptoms would be rapidly onset. A dry cough to begin with, becoming more persistent with time until pneumonia and pulmonary tuberculosis developed, bringing up blood and spittle with each hack. In most cases, the severity of the disease meant that sufferers were unable to continue working or died well before their 40th birthday. In a strange twist of fate, not long after style had been redeveloped, Samuel Gregg was gored by an errant deer in front of his beloved family home, Quarry Bank House, and so severely injured that arrangements were made for him to return to his bachelor pad at 35 King Street, Manchester, to recuperate. The circumstances of the incident are unclear. Perhaps curiosity on either part brought them into close proximity. The Greggs were keen naturalists, but maybe underestimated the potential aggression of a rotting buck 
or the protective instincts of a motherly doe. Flailing hooves and charging antlers proved to be more than a match for the ailing 76-year-old. Whatever the case, Samuel died from complications of his injuries on the 4th of June 1834. Of all the many dangers of the Hanoverian age, he was dispatched by a usually timid woodland creature. Nature had, in some sense, enacted a tragic form of poetic justice. Robert inherited the majority share of a business which had never been stronger, and by now comprised five mills across the northwest and a vast tract of land. His tenure saw monumental shifts in the rights of the people and the responsibilities of their employers. Much to his chagrin, in 1833 the Slavery Abolition Act was passed by Parliament, as was the Factory Act, the latter reducing the working hours of the average person to 12 hours a day. Children under 13 would now, by law, be allowed to work for no more than eight hours a day. Their employers were also obliged to provide them with two hours of elementary schooling before or after work. To ensure compliance with the new regulations, a minor government agency known as the Inspectorate of Factories was created, whose four-man team roamed the country looking to issue financial penalties for any infringements. Initially unable to police the country's 4,000 mills, the new laws went largely unenforced until a number of years later. The Chartists' movement sprang from a gathering cohort of disenfranchised brethren who campaigned and gradually won more rights for the working class, bringing with it the prospect of a unionised workforce, enshrining the rights of the common man to a fair day's pay for a fair day's work, and very soon, the vote. By the 1850s, the apprentice system had been mercifully abandoned, and it was made illegal for anyone, let alone children, to work underneath active machinery. Although it would take five years for all British territories to be rid of the barbaric practice of human slavery, the legacy of such torturous treatment remained. Parliament had borrowed 40% of the country's annual GDP to compensate not only the captive peoples and their families, but also their tight-fisted owners, who would otherwise have been out of pocket. America wouldn't see the emancipation of slaves until President Lincoln proclaimed their freedom in 1865, which left mill owners like Robert free to profit from their backbreaking work for at least another 20 years, and still cash his government check. Before then, the American Civil War would lay waste to not only 750,000 servicemen, both Confederate and Union soldiers, but to the livelihoods of up to 430,000 British mill workers. Federal blockades at ports up and down the East Coast saw the supply of cotton run dry in the early 1860s. The extreme economic hardship experienced by the workers of Quarry Bank and its surrounding parishes as the looms ground to a halt came to be known as the Lancashire Cotton Famine. Although initially believed to be a temporary blip, as the war dragged on, mill closures saw mass unemployment devastate many areas. Stockpiles of the raw material stacked in warehouses were held back as collateral, with many mill owners selling their stock back to the states when prices were high. Government relief was offered to the proletariat in the form of coal and food tokens, which could be redeemed at local soup kitchens, along with opportunities to emigrate to the formerly United States and join factories there, or even enlist in the Union Army. Not many chose to take up these offers, opting instead to move inland to find work in the woollen mills of Yorkshire and Derbyshire, 
Although crippled by the war across the Atlantic, the mood within socialist circles was a conciliatory one. They saw their own lives reflected in the plight of the African slaves, and looked upon them as brothers in arms. As far as the common man was concerned, there could be no peace without abolition. Towards the end of Robert Craig's life, the grim business of Cotton and a stint in Parliament as MP for Manchester had soured his once youthful idealism and transformed him into an ill-tempered curmudgeon who was more respected than liked. Profits were down year on year, and the Gregg's market share dwindled to the point where Samuel Gregg and Sons was disbanded. Each mill would now operate as a separate entity, attempting to stave off financial ruin, until, inevitably, half of them closed their gates for good. Quarry Bank would remain open for business until 1959, 175 years after its founding. World Salad is written, recorded and produced by me, Chris Hudson. If you have enjoyed this episode and would like to support World Salad, please consider leaving a rating or review wherever you listen, following the show on Instagram at world underscore underscore salad and sharing it with your nearest and dearest.